This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. On today's podcast, I am joined by attorney and licensed NBA agent James O'Connor. For the past year, James has worked with college athletic departments and conferences across the nation to educate them on the legal aspects of NIL legislation. Although the NCAA now allows student athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness, regulations vary from state to state, and James explains how knowledgeable legal representation is essential for athletic departments and student athletes. You can learn more about his work by visiting www.barrettlaw.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, joining us today is James O'Connor. James is a partner at Barrett McNaggy Law Firm in Fort Wayne. Uh, James provides student athlete name, image, and likeness compliance education. And we're gonna talk about all things NIL today. He's also a member of the Purdue Fort Wayne Mastodon's Athletics Advisory Board. So he deals with this um, on a semi-regular basis. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. And, and before we kind of jump into everything NIL, if you tell us a little bit about your background, because I know you're a, a lawyer there in Fort Wayne, but you work with um, obviously Purdue Fort Wayne. Um, you were just down in New Orleans at the Final Four with the uh, National Association of Basketball Coaches giving a presentation. Um, and I also know you're a registered agent with the NBA and, and I believe FIBA, that, uh, FIBA if, I've, if that's correct. Mm, that's, that's exactly right. And actually, while I was down in New Orleans, I just got my WNBA uh, approved. So I got all three levels. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. But yeah, I, um, gosh, I've been with Barrett McNagney for 20 plus years. Uh, the first 15 or so was very heavy litigation. Um, in, in the world of law, that means a lot of courtroom stuff, uh, trying cases, um, jury trials, bench trials, mediations, depositions um, in almost every county in the state of Indiana. Uh, in the last five to six years, it's been more employment law oriented. Um, employment law is a little bit different from litigation because you can be a little more consulting based if you catch it on the front end. You can also be problem solving based and, and fix problems on the back end as they arise. But the connection with sports is, is such, there's an inherent overlap between um, issues related to compensation and wages, which fall under this general employment category. How do people receive monetary reimbursement for the services they are providing, whether they're an employee, an executive, or if you have a really fun, cool job in sports and you happen to be an athlete, you're subject to things like collective bargaining agreements. Well, all of the elements that exist in the business world in a more traditional workplace context are still present in a sports context. It's just the nature of the services are a lot more fun to watch. Right. So by applying this employment law background and an understanding for what this is in the last two to three years specifically, as I was watching name image likeness legislation be passed in various states and understanding how that workplace paradigm or, or the, the, uh, uh, the paradigm of, of implementation uh, that different states can have um, the same concept, but because the statutes are worded differently, watching this unfold and, and knowing that there are experienced, educated business people who get this stuff wrong, the idea that in name, image, and likeness, 
um, rights, these new, these new rights that the NCAA is going to now permit student athletes to have, it's only natural that there would be some inherent confusion about that. And so by educating myself on the process and developing this program called the ABCs of NIL, my thought was, well, at, you know, these are student athletes. At a minimum, they're, they're ideally suited to receive the education for what they can and can't do. Now, I'm presenting it for more of a legal compliance and education standpoint, but, but these student athletes are now, basically, they have the opportunity to be their own entrepreneurs. So they got to know what they can do, what they can't do. And, and just like, you know, after you get out of college, you're going to be a professional in a workplace environment. You're going you're gonna to have certain compliance standards that you need to meet. And, and NIL is just a fun way to do that. And so I worked in college athletics for about 10 years on, as both a coach and an AD, and I love working with student athletes. When I was a coach, I love being on the floor, and I love coaching, and I love winning. When I was an administrator, I love helping these student athletes reach their career goals and their athletic goals. Um, but if you would come to me and say, okay, now we've got NIL, you know, I think it started last July 1st, there's no real kind of guidelines other than there are some do's and don'ts, but okay, we got this now, and student athletes can now, they can go get money, they can make deals, they can do this. And, you know, as the coach or AD, you're now kind of de facto in charge of this thing. <laughs> My hands are in the air. I have no idea what's going on. As we were talking about before we jumped on, it's the wild, wild west. So are a lot of coaches kind of in that boat right there? Like, I have no clue what to do. So yeah, the, the conversations I have with coaches, it really depends on where the coach is in his or her career on how willing they are mm. to embrace the changes that are coming. Interesting. Um, we were talking about Jay Wright, Villanova, very successful coach, only 60 years old, right? Probably achieved enough financial resources that he can comfortably afford to retire. And it's only natural to wonder what role the evolving world of college athletics and the business of college sports plays in his decision to retire at some would say an early age. Um, you know, Krzyzewski, much the same thing. Um, and, and I have to believe that it is these changing natures. Conversations I have with coaches that they'll tell me, I, I got into sports to coach the game, to, to coach athletes, player development, make them be better. I'm going to make sure that they go to class so that they get their degrees. But that's why I'm in coaching. I'm not in small business mentorship. So now the coaches who are not in a position to retire yet, are looking at it to say, I got to know this stuff. Or if, if I don't know it, my assistant coaches need to know it because not only is there an expectation from the players we want to recruit that we know this stuff, but yeah, if there's an opportunity that we can uh, retain talent, not only get talent here, but keep them here because we have a compliant NIL program. Well, that's great. That, you know, for, you hear a lot of frustrations about the transfer portal and the ills mm -hmm. of, of what that means. A, a well-run, um, fundamentally sound NIL program could be an answer to the transfer portal. Because for most of these athletes, the, the great likelihood is, for the great majority of the athletes, the four to five years of being on a college campus might be their best opportunity to monetize a, perfect, you know, a, a, a compensation related to athletics. You know, just not everybody's going to matriculate to play at a professional level. And so if you can build a brand and build a fan base and, and make some money, 
uh, depending how we classify it. We could talk about what that classification looks like. But yeah, that's that's going to be for the most of these student athletes, the closest they get to the feeling of a professional environment. So how do you think this may affect college sports? I, I My opinion, when it first came out, like when there was kind of rumblings that, hey, this was actually going to be passed last summer, you know, I thought it was going to be kind of like the final death nail for, for mid-majors. You know, I don't know how some of these mid-majors are going to be able to compete against some of the, the power five, the autonomous five, who – you know, the, the backup quarterback for Alabama is going to get a lot more deals going there than he would going to Western Michigan or, or anything else, right? Um, is that true? Is that a little overwrought? Or is there an opportunity for like a Purdue-Fort Wayne to now, okay, we may have to shift our, our thinking of, all right, let's go out and let's go recruit kids that fit us to, you know, hey, if we can partner up with some businesses that maybe kind of help us out, which I don't think you're really allowed to do within NCAA rules, but mm -hmm. at this point, who's stopping you? Well, and then it depends what state you're in. And so yeah. sometimes what you'll hear me refer to is the patchwork of states. And, and anytime you hear patchwork in a legal context, it means that one state does it one way, another state does it another way. And so you have some inherent challenges with compliance or what constitutes a level playing field, right? So for NIL in general, there's this current patchwork of states because there is no overarching federal law that would otherwise make uniform what the NCAA had in its prohibition on NIL compensation before last summer, right? And so that may mean that one of the four or five current pieces of proposed federal legislation might get legs. And, and so that could impact what college sports looks like, um, which, you know, I, I, can, I can give you my own opinion on why I think that sure. is a good idea. But to your question about what happens at the various levels in college sports, it really is going to invite this almost instant separator of talent, right? Your four and five star athletes in the various sports, in the absence of some almost altruistic, uh, loyalty-driven, um, just non-capitalist decision to not play for a team that's going to result in the greatest personal revenue for the athlete, in the absence of uh, that kind of a decision, mm -hmm. yeah, you're probably going to have this environment where the power five conferences stockpile talent because their athletes are able to capitalize on their moment. Right now, what does that mean for the mid majors, high mid majors, low mid majors in the absence of the NCAA, let's take basketball, for example, the field of 68 has what, maybe 50% are power five teams. The other 50% are, are high mid-major, low mid-major teams. But we saw like St. Peter's have an upset run, right? You could still have a low mid-major upset a Purdue, uh, you know, university. And, and you'd say, well, how does that happen? It's because it's sports. You know, you've got one game and on any given day, you're going to have an outcome. So clearly – the talent roster for St. Peter's is different, you know, one star, two star, maybe a two and a half star athlete than what Purdue has four stars, five star athletes, NBA lottery picks. Right. But you can still have the outcome. So student athletes who want to play are going to go wherever they have the opportunity to play. It's just that their opportunities to play at the high mid major level or the power five conference level are basically what their natural talent is anyway. 
So the natural talent that they bring to the table is going to provide those opportunities, right? But you still have like Purdue Fort Wayne or Trine or places that have rosters to give a student athlete a scholarship. And then it's just about what, what do you hope to do with the scholarship opportunity you have? And this is where I think maybe I'm in evolving on the issue a little bit. And I thought you, you put it together really nicely right there where you're right. I don't think talent is going to necessarily kind of matriculate down through the different high majors, low majors, mid-major, whatever. I, I, I agree with that now. Now what I see, and, and maybe this is going to get in my question of what are some of the unintended consequences. Now talent is just jumping from school to school at those high majors. I mean, we're seeing like that. I can't remember his name, but the guy from Kansas State is getting an $800,000 deal. And now he's going from Kansas State to uh, Miami and the Cavender twins, or I think are transferring to Miami. So, um, that is what I kind of see as one of the interesting kind of unintended consequences of NIL. Is there anything else there that, that I may be missing? Well, I think the one of the unintended consequences is the rise of the collective. There really, in, in none of the states that I've researched, was there ever a specific express reference to an organization dedicated to um, developing NIL opportunities? Most of the states were really just about this is going to sound like a double negative, but you weren't going to allow a university or an association to make ineligible a player for accepting these. So mm -hmm. it was basically the state mm -hmm. laws saying no university, no conference, no association can prohibit the student athlete from doing it. Fine. But it wasn't so much about these newly found entities, some of whom have 501c3 status, being the facilitator for deals. And because it's the wild, wild west, and, and I say that mostly because without a steadfast enforcement mechanism applied on a uniform basis, people are going to get as creative as they want to get. And so you have this rise of the collective that, it, that really, you know, you, you're talking about a handful of highly motivated boosters, some of whom are very well healed, who are pooling assets and really can define a, the quote-unquote success of an organization however they want. So even if they don't make money, right, if their teams are winning, then they're glad to participate as an owner or stakeholder in a collective that gets the talent that supports the team, right? And so if you were a motivated booster before, you now have opportunities like on steroids to, yep. to really pull the most talent you want and, and it can be, if it's structured properly, it can be legal. Well, you know, it's an incentive and the, and the market kind of responds yeah. to incentives on that. And, you know, you're right. Boosters are, are no different. Now they, you can actually, I guess, legally have a hand in helping your team win, which, yeah. you know, if I was a, a big booster, I'd, that would be appealing to me. Yep. Now to your point, you know, like let's just, and I'm, I'm basketball inclined, but the principles that I discuss in a basketball context are equally applicable across football, hockey, softball, you, soccer, you name it, they, they, they can apply. In the basketball world, you have a relatively limited number of, of seats on the bench, right? You may not have a hard and fast NCAA or, or NAIA only allows 15 basketball scholarships. It's kind of up to the team. So some schools might have 17 players. Some schools might only carry 13 players. But if you had a hard and fast cap on the number of scholarships that were available, 
right? And so even if you had a desire from a three-and-a-half-star athlete to, to want to be at Kentucky and secure an NIL, if there's no room available, if there are four-and-a-half to five-star athletes who haven't left, mm-hmm. right, just because the three-and-a-half wants to be at Kentucky doesn't mean they're going to have opportunities for that. And then it's up to the athlete to decide, well, I better take my skills to whatever school is going to provide me with an opportunity to play, right? And, and I might be influenced to go to a school where I sit on the bench because the NIL money is right. That's fascinating. I mean, it's, it, it, and again, it's hard for me as, as a former athlete and coach to wrap my mind around just because, you know, what, I was about winning and, and that was an important and being about the team and having an opportunity to play. Mm-hmm. Um, if I would go back at, at 18 and think about how I was at 18 and you did dangle some money in front of me and like, you may get less playing time, but you know, you could make a hundred thousand a year or whatever. Boy, it'd be hard to say no. Exactly. That's, I mean, you're talking about a finite window of time where the athlete has to, and if you can incentivize them to get the degree, right. Yep. Make yep. a little money as a young person, get your degree. And now you really are using the skills and the education that you went to school for to set yourself up for winning in life. Yeah, absolutely. Most of them aren't going pro anyway. So mm-hmm. uh, great point. And so when you talk with student athletes or athletic departments, but, but specifically student athletes, like what are the things that they really need to know before they get into an NIL deal? So part, and this, this you know, dovetails very neatly into why I created the ABCs of NIL. And so the ABCs are literally, A stands for agents and attorneys right? Depending on your state law, you, the student athlete may have or retain an attorney or an agent who's licensed in that state to represent them and protect their interests, which is critical because one of the big issues with name, image, and likeness is for how long the, the, the vendor, the, the NIL contract partner uh, has the opportunity to use the name, image, or likeness of the athlete, mm. Right. There are many state statutes that expressly prohibit an NIL deal may not last longer than the student has either eligibility or is enrolled at the school, right? So the attorney or agent should be well-versed enough to to structure the contract in a legally compliant way. B is banned industries. You know, some states specifically outline what a student athlete cannot endorse. Very early last summer, you saw barstool sports have this wide open, yes, we'll, we'll sponsor anybody. And so literally, people were sending in images of themselves in exchange for maybe a shout out on Twitter or maybe a t-shirt from Barstool Sports, but not appreciating that Barstool was a subsidiary of Penn Gaming. Many of the state statutes expressly prohibit the ability to endorse a, a vice-oriented business, gambling, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, all these things. And it, and it makes some sense for the integrity of the sport that you would not want vice-oriented businesses. to. Well, I can promise you most of those student athletes didn't think that they were jeopardizing their NCAA eligibility by receiving a T-shirt, right? But they just didn't know, right? So C stands not only for collective, but it stands for conflicts. D is disclosures. And so if the student athletes understand that universities have official partners that they work with might be an apparel partner might be a preferred tire sales operation right but that's an official partner where there's an existing contract with that school so let's take for example um 
is is trying uh, sponsored by any of the apparel brands? We're a Nike school. Now, okay. obviously, we don't get the same deal as sure. you know, like Purdue, the same, but, but yeah, even Nike if school. the financial terms aren't aren't quite the same, let's just say you have trying athletes um, who have the uh, Nike apparel, <laughs> and um, one of the uh, there's a great hockey team at Trine, right? Yeah, so yeah, one absolutely. one of the one of the hockey players gets approached by Under Armour. Mm-hmm. And, and Under Armour says, hey, we want you to wear our merch all the time. We're going to give you all the swag. Here's a, here's a, a $200, $300 per month stipend that you can just buy our stuff you, we don't want you to wear. Theoretically, the student athlete is supposed to talk to the identified person at Trine, the administrator in the sports uh, athletics department. Hey, Under Armour has approached me. They want me to wear their merch all the time. And then Trine is supposed to say, well, you know, hey, we've got this deal with Nike. So the way we resolve this quote unquote conflict, see conflict, and thanks to your disclosure, you told us about it, we're going to have this official merch time and an unofficial time. When you're on an official team activity, you have to wear the Nike stuff. When you're on your own time and it's an unofficial school thing, you can wear whatever you want. And if Under Armour wants you to wear their stuff in unofficial times, you've complied with the conflict and disclosure, right? So we've got A, B, C, D. E can be potentially an employment situation because there's a difference between NIL compensation and what are wages associated or or remuneration for services rendered, right? But like S is scholarship. An NIL deal cannot reduce the overall value of of a scholarship. T is taxes. What a lot of student athletes aren't appreciating, and frankly, a lot of adults don't fully understand. Heck, I've been practicing law 20 years, and I don't know the tax laws as well as I should know them. I hire somebody else to do it. But receiving gross revenue, I do know this part, that receiving gross revenue from any source is, is, a, is a likely a reportable outcome, right? And so I'm going to have to pay taxes on that. NIL money is no different. If the student athlete is receiving a big dollar deal and it's gets widely reported and then the IRS wonders where their cut is, right? Could you imagine uh, the quarterback for insert power five conference champion team being deemed ineligible somehow for failing to pay taxes two years prior, right? It, now we haven't seen that stuff and there's not really a, a penalty in the statutes that would permit that, but it stands to reason that look, there's, the government's going to get theirs. You, you want to make sure you, you stay compliant there. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I was going to ask about taxes, so I'm glad you brought that up. But that brought something else up to my mind. And again, kind of looking at it from the coach's point of view, what happens when said star quarterback all of a sudden doesn't live up to or doesn't fulfill their part of the contract? You know, they were supposed to have so many pictures in, in their Under Armour gear. They only did five of 10 social media posts. Now they're in breach of contract. Yep. Under Armour's going to the coach like, hey, you know, you need to work this out for us. So you, you really tapped into one of the critical and foundational elements for why attorneys and agents are involved on behalf of the student athlete, mm-hmm. because it really does create some separation from where the coach specifically can be in a really awkward situation. In other words, you know, when the coach is recruiting a player, there's a trust element that exists between the player and the coach. And by virtue of the player's attendance and playing for the team, this NIL opportunity comes along and either one party or the other doesn't fulfill. Either it's a student athlete who doesn't comply with the number of social media posts or personal appearances or autograph sessions, 
or it's the NIL partner who didn't pay when they were supposed to pay, right? And that's going to put the coach in a really uncomfortable position because the coach has several other players that he has to maintain good relationships with. He has hopefully other NIL uh, partners that he wants to continue to, but now he's supposed to be the problem solver. Well, I'm not sure that there's a, another thing that could take a coach out of the mindset of, I want to be player development. I want to talk about strategy. I want to talk about how we win games. I don't want to deal with you know, small business difficulties. I'm not here to be a business coach or talk about that. So how nice for the coach to be able to say to the student athlete or to the NIL partner, okay, this student athlete is represented by James O'Connor. That's an O'Connor problem. Let's get O'Connor engaged. And, and it's like anything else, right? If coaching is a form of mentoring, then mm-hmm. having the right agent or attorney represent the student athlete is how the student athlete surrounds him or herself with, you know, fiduciary relationship oriented advisors, people who understand what the development process is, but in a business context, right? And so if you have to bring the young person along and say, hey, this is adulting at a very high level. We have to fulfill the obligations. If we don't fulfill the obligations, this piece of paper allows either party to go into court and, and sue the other one for performance, right? Well, I only got into basketball to play basketball and I just want to get paid. Eh, you know what? Gatorade wanted their, their Michael Jordan appearances, right? If, if Michael Jordan didn't perform, Gatorade would not pay. And so this is, this is literally what lawsuits and businesses are all about. But again, coaches administrators, that's not exactly why they got into their industry. And so allowing the student athlete to have this level of professional representation really does adhere to the benefit of the student athlete because they're coming along in the training of life, right, at a young age. So that's the best thing that they can do is have um, somebody who understands the roles and then can work with either side to, to facilitate an outcome. And I mean, that's not a sales pitch. It's truth what you're talking about right there. And do you find that colleges have, have figured this out pretty quickly and, and a little bit on the fly, but they have been proactive and trying to set up um, relationships with, with good, knowledgeable, caring, um, legal representation to kind of help their, their student athletes navigate these waters? Well, they're certainly doing it on the fly. Yeah. And like when I was down in uh, New Orleans with the NABC, um, got into a couple of very good conversations with um, you know, either associate directors or executive directors of various conferences. And you could see they were still building their knowledge base mm-hmm. of what this means, right? So they're learning. I, I sense a genuine interest of everybody wanting to do it the right way and be legally compliant. But the guidance from the NCAA simply says for NIL purposes, you still can't have pay for play or pay to play. We can't have, so they give these very broad, you can't have this illegal recruiting inducement system, right? So what does that mean? And then you have to divert, you know, sort of refer to, well, what does your state permit? And if you're a state that doesn't have a law, what does your school permit, right? And so when the athletic directors want to get it right from a university standpoint or administrators and conference levels want to get it right. They do just what you guys had. They had symposiums. You're finding people um, who have some level of awareness that you're bringing in to educate and craft these policies, right? But in the absence of a federal law that makes uniform everybody and the application for everybody, and, and when you have a federal law and someone violates the federal law 
in the absence of an express enforcement provision. Do you imagine the FBI getting involved in some tattling that takes place between Auburn and Alabama? That absolutely could happen if there was a federal law that's passed and in the absence of some specially created problem-solving forum, which I think is what will ultimately happen. Wow, this is unbelievable. So if, if coaches or athletic administrators are, are listening and, and they want to learn more about the ABCs of NIL, um, is there a place where they could go to, to learn more about what you do with schools? Yeah, absolutely. So not only on my LinkedIn page, uh, which I'm glad to share a, a link with you, um, it's where I also post podcasts like this so that it becomes a quick uh, referral source uh, for that. Um, I'm glad to also share my email address. Um, and just start start that dialogue. This is still so new um, mm. that it, like anything else, it's relationship building and it's it's who you know. And for the right school, uh, where they want to do it the right way and educate their stakeholders, you you could absolutely. I'd be you know, let me come down and give a forty five minute presentation on the ABCs of NIL to your boosters so that they can be thinking about how to apply it right? That's an educational piece that this ABCs is designed to do. Um, and, and so I'm glad to customize because in fact, it, the program is customized to the school, right? So yeah. it's, yeah. you know, when, when we set a date for me to come and present, I'm preparing the materials to say, okay, well, if we're in Pennsylvania, right, here's the current status of Pennsylvania. If we're in Tennessee, where they're already making changes as recently as the last 48 hours to now permit collectives or employees of universities to facilitate deals, right? How are you going to stay legally compliant, right? And so at least you're getting that education to all the stakeholders. And then if it results in a, and we happen to have an athlete who, who needs representation, oh, well, I can get licensed real quick to be an agent in that state. Yeah. And I think that's one of the fascinating things that isn't brought up in all this. It's great that student athletes are able to capitalize off their name, image, and likeness, and that's fantastic and everything. But just how this varies from state to state is is really, really interesting. And uh, one last question I wanted to ask before I, I let you go, just because you are licensed with um, NBA and, and FIBA and the WNBA now, we do have students who are really interested in becoming uh, agents mm-hmm. and representing athletes. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about that, like what, what What's the path? We've had a few different sport agents on and, and some are like, no, nah, you don't need law school. Then some, yeah, you really do. And there's different paths for everybody. You know, if you were to sit down and, and kind of counsel a, a, an undergraduate student and, and their dream is to become a licensed one day, um, what would be your advice? So it's interesting because what, what I have heard is exactly what you said, and there is no one defined path. Right? Sure. Everybody comes to it on, on his or her own individual way, and, and everybody's journey is a little bit different. Uh, mine was such that as a fan of a local university that occasionally would have international eligible students, athletes, basketball players who were good enough to play overseas – but who didn't have the legal education and background to understand what their FIBA contract said or their agent selection contract said. I just had an interest in learning it. So I, I literally would sit down, learn the material, schedule an appointment with the student athlete, have them come into my office. And now they're getting what in some cases is their first engagement with a professional work environment, right? But we're doing it from a coaching, teaching mentality to give them the experience. Well, as I learned the FIBA regulations, uh, I then had a reason to, to start learning the NBA regulations and realized, okay, well, 
yeah, as it happens, my law background allows me to more easily digest a collective bargaining agreement. Well, then I, how do you become licensed? Well, it's really not anything more than sitting down and taking about a two, three hour test. Now you have to do well on the test, but in the absence of passing a background check and sitting for the exam, that's really it, right? So I did that. And now it's given me a reason to have very fun conversations. Do you have to be a lawyer? No, you absolutely don't need to be a lawyer. You do have to have enough background in, in education to know how to study uh, and learn the materials. It certainly helps to have a legal background because you understand the paradigms and things like jurisdiction and things like why a collective bargaining agreement matters, but you don't have to have it. Okay. Great advice. And again, we're talking with James O'Connor today. Check him out. If you go to barrettlaw.com, B-A-R-R-E-T-T law.com, you can uh, find James and and, uh, learn more about the ABCs of NIL. James, thanks so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. This is our last podcast of the school year, but we will continue to publish one episode a month during the summer. Please check out our social media pages for our next guest in May. As always, we'd like to say a special thank you to producer Josh Hornbacher for his work behind the scenes today. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast, broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the Center for Sports Studies podcast on your favorite podcasting platform and give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. Also, be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trine CSS and subscribe to our YouTube page by searching for Trine University Center for Sports Studies. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.